I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 5, and we will read verses 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's been a while since we spent time in the Epistle of James, a couple of months. But if you're joining us for the first time, the Epistle of James was written by James, the half-brother of our Lord. James was not always a believer of the Lord, but, became, but came to saving faith after the Lord's resurrection. He became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem and was known for his piety. From James' epistle, we know that James believed in the power of prayer because of the amount of attention that he gives to it. Uh, for example, if you turn back to chapter 1, in verse 5, we read that, if you lack wisdom, James says, ask God who gives generously. In verse 6, he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. And then if we go to ver I mean, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, regarding worldliness, he asks, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So James places a high emphasis on prayer. And church history tells us that James had a unique nickname. He was known as Camelnes. According to church historian Eusebius, James frequently entered the temple and was frequently found situated upon his knees, asking forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard after the manner of a camel, on account of always bending down upon a knee while worshiping God and asking forgiveness for the people. So James wrote his letter to Jewish Christians who were scattered among the nations, he wrote this letter to encourage believers to live out their faith, and he did so by describing what saving faith looks like in daily living. In other words, genuine faith is not just about claiming to believe in God. It's about walking with him, relating to him in a way that God calls us to do so. Now, earlier in the letter, James focused on the purpose of trials. He says in, back in chapter 1 that Christians have reason to rejoice when they find themselves in various trials. The reason is that trials and temptations uh, or suffering, they're not meaningless. Trials are not meaningless. They are purposeful 
in that they serve as a means to mature our faith. He then continues saying that wisdom is needed to understand this. And if anyone lacks wisdom, he is to ask God for it in faith, trusting that he will provide what we ask for, in this case being wisdom. So this brings us to our passage for today, where James explains what a living, genuine, saving faith looks like, specifically as it relates to prayer in times of trials, temptation, and everything in between. The first thing that James wants us to know regarding saving faith is saving faith praise. James begins with a series of questions, beginning with verse 13. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. These two questions give us the focus of our passage. He wants us to know, James wants us to know that a saving faith is a praying faith. James tells us here right off the bat that saving faith prays in every situation. Notice that call to pray when you suffer and praise when you smile. In every situation, we are called to pray. And specifically, we're called to pray when you suffer. You see that in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Suffering here is a broad word that means more than just illness. It can include experiencing all kinds of hardships and distress whether it's physical, mental, or emotional suffering. For example, the word used for suffering here is used of Paul's imprisonment while in Rome. Uh, and we find that in 2 Timothy 2.9. And Paul's exhortation to Timothy to expect hardship in pastoral ministry. You read that in 2 Timothy 4.5. The suffering that James has in mind is, is suffering as a result of living in this fallen and broken world but also suffering for doing what is right, for living righteous lives. James says that believers aren't to respond like the world responds when they suffer. While those who don't know the Lord may become anxious, they may complain or grumble and even blame God, God's people are called to take their cares and their concerns to the Lord. God commands us to pray when we suffer. This command to pray ought not to be seen as a burdensome chore. Instead, it ought to be understood as a means of abiding with our saving God who loves us and desires what is best for us. The call to prayer is something that we ought to do regularly as a lifestyle. Whenever you find yourself suffering, whether you are having a bad day at work, having a challenging time with your children at home, facing conflict in marriage, suffering for your faith, go to God in prayer. Just as a natural response to hammering your thumb or stubbing your toe is to yell or scream, so our natural response to suffering ought to be to pray. When you pray, 
Pray not only for your suffering to go away. Remember that James says in chapter 1 that trials produce perseverance. And Christians are to let perseverance have its full effect. This means, let your trial produce in you the maturity in your life that God intends it to. From this, we learn not only to pray for deliverance from our, our trials, but also to pray for strength to endure whatever situation we find ourselves in. Praise God that we are not called to endure suffering on our own. You see, the call to prayer and suffering is a call to, con to, to commune with God. And we get a glimpse of this in, in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 23, David writes about the Lord being our shepherd. He is a good shepherd who takes care of his people, providing for his people what they need. Providing what is needed for life and godliness in, this, in, in our journey through this world. Who provides comfort in the midst of danger. And in John, we find that Jesus is this good shepherd who is with his people. This is true because he is with us. This reality of God being with us is ever-present when we draw near to him in prayer. So pray when you suffer, but also praise when you smile. We continue reading in verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James gives us the other end of the spectrum of human experience. He says, in essence, are you of good cheer, good spirits? Are things going well? Are you seeing God answer your prayers? Are you able to witness the fruit of the discipline that you're giving yourself to? Are you enjoying the blessings of God, growing in godliness? You get a raise. Did you hear about your children's accomplishment um, during school this week? If so, praise God. The call to praise God is not the opposite of prayer. Rather, it's a form of prayer. We see this in the Psalms, which means song. David wrote many psalms and was one who played his instrument as an accompaniment to his psalms. Today, in our gathering, uh, we read psalms privately, corporately. We sing the psalms and we pray the psalms. Now, it's usually easier to remember God when we suffer because of our need for help. But it oftentimes can be hard to remember God when everything is going right. For this reason, I believe that James calls believers to praise God when things are going well because of the temptation to forget him and to make life all about ourselves and the fleeting pleasures that this world offers. Praise is a proper response to the God who is a giver of good gifts. Life comes from God. Sustenance comes from God. 
clothing, housing, health, work, family, pets. Every good thing comes from God. And we are to praise God as the one who is responsible for every blessing that we enjoy. This is what James told us back in chapter 1. In both times of suffering and times of smiling, James calls us to go to God in prayer. We must develop a dependence on God in all of life. This is why we read in Proverbs 3.6, In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. We must not forget, brothers and sisters, that the reason for our existence is that we were created for God. We were created to relate to God. God has taken it upon himself to bridge the gap that was created between us because of our sin. And we are called to foster that relationship as we turn to him in prayer in all of life's circumstances. Praise the Lord for his goodness and for his kindness to us. I want to ask you this morning, who do you depend on in life? When you suffer, where do you turn to for comfort, for peace, for help? Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's money. Maybe you turn to yourself. If you don't turn to God, when you suffer, think about what you do turn to and ask yourself, how is that working out for you? When you smile, when things are going good, how do you rejoice? When you get a raise, when you pass your exam, when you have your prayer answered, do you immediately turn to planning on how to spend that extra money? Do you turn to celebrate with your friends and family, forgetting the one who answered the prayer? Do the things that you turn to keep you grounded on God, or do they push you away and leave you empty? Friends, why not turn to God in all circumstances? He has revealed himself to be a loving, merciful, kind, compassionate, generous God who cares about everything that you experience in this world. And he invites us to depend on him for everything and to enjoy sweet fellowship with him. He, James calls us to depend on God. So saving faith prays in every situation. The second thing that James says is that saving faith prays in times of sickness. Saving faith prays in times of sickness. 
We see this in verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Notice that James moves from general call to prayer in all circumstances to now a more specific situation. Once again, when believers encounter suffering in the form of sickness, James says that the answer is prayer. In the first example, we find general situations where believers are, to, are able to pray on their own. Now in this situation, the believer finds himself in a place where he or she is so sick or so ill that he or she can't pray or is unable to meet with the local church for prayer. The word sick here is a word that indicates to be feeble, weak, or without strength. This is the way a royal officer's son was described in John chapter 4, where we are told that the officer went to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his son who laid sick and was close to death. Unable to go himself, the child's father goes to call Jesus so that he would go to the son. We see something similar here in James, verse 14 of chapter 5, where the believer is called to call for the elders, and the elders are to pray over him. Presumably, the believer is bedridden. This passage teaches us that Christians are susceptible to sickness. Contrary to what many false teachers teach regarding health and wealth, James shows us that Christians also get sick. It's part of living in this fallen world. And when this happens, what are we to do? James says, call the elders for prayer. Notice what the purpose of calling the elders is for. James says that the elders are called specifically for prayer. We do not find a call or a command for the elders to heal the sick believer. Rather, it is a call to intercede for the sick believer. Now, I want us to make a few observations about these verses here in verses 14 and 15. First, notice that the text says that the one who is sick is to initiate and call for the elders, not the other way around. While it is a good thing for elders to reach out to church members to see how they are doing, James tells us that there are times when church members are to invite the elders for a visitation, for prayer, specifically when one is unable to come to church due to illness. Second, it is the elders who are called to pray for healing for the church member who is ill. The ill person or believer is the one who receives the prayer. Now, it's also, this is also a good place to note that James specifically says to call 
the elders, those who are called to care for God's people in the church. The Catholic Church wrongly understands this passage to mean um, to call a priest for anointing, for spiritual cleansing, for sin before a person dies. In other words, this is reserved for the deathbed as a means of securing forgiveness of sins before a person dies. It is often referred to as the sacrament of extreme unction or last rites. As most of you know, um, I work as a hospice chaplain. And in this line of work, we provide support, spiritual support to everyone, regardless of their faith. And one of the requests that I commonly get is from Catholic um, patients and families is, please call the priest because my loved one is about to die. And their hope is that the priest will come and anoint the sick so that before they die, their sins will be forgiven. This is not what James is referring to here. This is not what the Bible teaches. James is saying that this passage is not preparation for death, but instead intercession for healing. Third, the elders are called to anoint with oil. Now, I want us to camp out here for a little bit, because I'm sure many of us are wondering, what in the world is going on here? What does anoint with oil mean? Well, in the Old Testament, oil was used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. The practice of anointing someone like a king, for example, involved placing oil on a person's head in a ceremonial way. It demonstrated the presence of God with that person. One commentator explains the uses of oil in the ancient Mediterranean world, both medicinal and ritual, and concludes that anoint here in James refers to a physical action with symbolic significance. As the elders pray, they are to anoint the sick person in order to symbolize that the person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. A second way anointing with oil was used in the ancient world was as a medicinal practice. Oil massages were considered medicinal. And we find examples of this in scripture. For example, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus mentions the application of oil to heal the wounds of the man who was robbed and beaten in the parable. In Mark 6.13, we are told that the disciples cast out many demons and anointed um, many sick with oil and healed them. Now, I believe that both ideas are true when James is saying to pray and to anoint. James may be saying something like this. If you are ill, 
Call for the elders of the church to pray and anoint you with oil as a means of primarily seeking God's attention and care. At the same time, I believe James is also saying, use medication or medicine available to treat your illness, trusting that your healing ultimately comes from God. So the uses of anointing with oil are not at odds with each other, but actually complement one another. So long as we trust in God as the giver of healing and help. James told us back in chapter 1 that every good gift comes from above, from our unchanging Father. And because of this, we can receive medicine and health care as a good gift from God, not as a replacement for God. This is not to say that faith is not enough to to heal because God is powerful to heal. He's healed me. And if I don't testify, the stones will testify. Seven years ago, well, the healing took place seven years ago. Nine years ago, I started feeling extreme pain in my ass somewhere deep in there. And I didn't know what it was. And the pain kept increasing. And it kept getting worse and worse. And it got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. I would try to alleviate the pain by dropping my, my, my stomach on the back of the chair and letting the weight belt push that pain in. Because that was the only thing that would help. And once that stopped working, I would place hot towels my stomach to try to alleviate the pain. And then when that stopped working, I went to the doctor. <laughs> Thankfully, my mother was praying. And she called family friends who are pastors, and they began to pray for me. My desperation led me to go straight to, to, to the emergency room, and I found out that I had also. X-rays were shown, they were there. I believe it was a result of eating a lot of spicy food. And I was supposed to come back to get surgery, but something interesting happened in that time frame. The pain went away. No surgery. It was a miracle. It was the Lord. Now, sometimes we can get a little uncomfortable when we talk about miracles because of the abuses that take place within Christian circles. But brothers and sisters, God doesn't change. The same God who healed in the Old Testament who we read of healing in the New Testament, continues to heal now as the New Testament continues. The Lord is powerful to save. The Lord is compassionate and hears our prayers. We ought to go to the Lord in prayer. 
What we need to understand and believe is that God is our healer, and this is why James says that the elders are to anoint in the name of the Lord. It is in the name of the Lord. It is a reminder that Pfizer does not heal. Tylenol doesn't heal. But God does heal. Praise the Lord. We also find that we are called not only to call the elders for prayer, but also to pray in faith. And we see that in verse 15. Notice the description of faith that James describes. James says that the prayer of faith comes with a promise. It will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Did you catch the emphasis on faith? Here is on the elders, not the sick person. Going back to false teachers, they oftentimes focus only on health and wealth, promising healing and blessing, usually in the form of monetary blessing. But this text from James, uh, unfortunately, is one text that has been oftentimes misused to teach these false teachings as a basis for their ministry. James here shows us that the elders pray for the sick, therefore the sick are not to be blamed for lack of faith. Now, this doesn't exclude the sick from having faith in God, because all believers should have faith in God. We should trust God. But the emphasis, emphasis is not on the sick believer. Now, the term prayer of faith is not explicitly defined for us in this chapter, and unfortunately, it's the only time that the phrase is used in Scripture. But... I think we have a clue here in the book of James. If we look back at chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, James has already told us how we are to ask of God. He says that we are to ask of God, for we are to pray in faith with no doubting. If one asks with doubt, he shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Because James says he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This means at least that the prayer of faith is a prayer that is offered, believing God to be able to heal and to keep his promises according to his will. In other words, prayer must be accompanied by faith. Again, just like it's not medicine that heals, so also it's not the oil that heals either. It's God. As a side note, as Bible-believing Christians, we want to read and understand this passage in light of all of Scripture. So, like a puzzle that makes up a full picture of, um, yeah, like a puzzle that makes up a full picture out of many small connecting pieces, we want to connect this passage on healing with other passages found in Scripture. 
Elsewhere in scripture, we find examples of people not receiving healing in this life. An example of this is found in John 11, and it deals with Jesus' good friend Lazarus, whom he loved. We're told that Lazarus had become ill, and Mary and Martha wanted Jesus to come heal him because they knew that he could. Surprisingly, when Jesus received the news, he stayed where he was for a few more days before going to see him. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, what? What's going on? Why would he do that? And then I thought, maybe he'll just say the word and it'll happen, but that's not what happens. Eventually, Lazarus died and Jesus didn't heal him. It's interesting what Jesus reveals about the purpose of Lazarus' illness, though. In John 11:4, Jesus says that his illness would be for God's glory, so that the Son of Man might be glorified through it. We find that the entire circumstance of Lazarus' illness and death was under God's sovereign control. God used the situation to glorify himself and to increase the faith of Jesus' followers as they witness Jesus' power to resurrect his friend from the grave. James doesn't guarantee that all sick believers will be healed, but he does call us to trust God when we pray. This is because God is trustworthy. God is able to heal. God doesn't withhold anything good from us. God will always do what is right and what is good for us, even if we don't understand it. God is not only able to heal, but he also desires to heal his people and will do it, whether here in this world or in the world to come. But the promise of healing will come. This text is a text that is very comforting for me because as a lot of you know, or some of you know, about five years ago, here comes another um, testimony, sorry. Out of nowhere, I got psoriasis. And it's all over my arms. And pretty much what psoriasis is, is my body produces skin faster than the normal person. And because of that, um, the skin kind of just accumulates into scaly patches and they just fall off. It's an autoimmune disease according to what the doctors say. And it's something that God can heal me of, but in his kindness, he's chosen not to do so. And initially, I was stressing out because there went all of my short sleeve t-shirts during summertime. And the more and more that time went on, the more and more that I realized that my psoriasis has been a blessing in disguise. It's kept me depending on the Lord. It's kept me from forgetting, from, from not forgetting, excuse me, that God is good and he gives good gifts to his children. And this 
Psoriasis has been a gift in disguise because it has helped draw me near to the Lord. And so, I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, do you trust God when you pray? Specifically, for healing? You may not say it out loud, but ask yourself, are you cynical of God? Where is your confidence when you pray? Is your confidence for answered prayer found in how good you've been the last week? And so when you make your prayer, you expect God to answer? Is your confidence in your ability to pray long theological prayers with fancy words? According to James, our confidence is in Jesus' name. Scripture teaches us that it is through Christ that we have access to God the Father. It is because of Christ's saving work that we have direct access to God. And not only do we have access, but God hears us and he answers our prayers according to his will. We can draw near to, to God because of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this passage is very encouraging because it presents an upside of the gospel or a benefit of the gospel. You see, you and I were once dead in our sins and in our trespasses, and we had no way of drawing near to God if we were to come before God and he were to, 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 to reveal himself to us, we would drop dead. Unclean, sinful people standing before a holy God could not survive. But praise God that through his son Jesus Christ, we have access to God. And he hears us and he answers prayer. Whether it's yes, I will answer right now. No, I will not answer that prayer. Or yes, but not now. We have access to God because of Christ. And so when we pray, brothers and sisters, we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not as a magic formula, but as dependence on reality, which is, that it is only through Jesus that we have direct access to God. And because of that, we can come before God with confidence, knowing that he hears us and that he will answer our prayers. So saving faith prays in every situation. Saving pray, faith prays in times of sickness. And third, saving faith prays in response to sin. In verse 16, we see that saving faith responds uh, in prayer to sin. Once again, James goes from general call to prayer to specific calls to prayer. We have seen the individual believers call to prayer, the leaders call to prayer, and now the congregations call to prayer. The first response to sin is to confess sins to one another. We see it there in James uh, 16. 
Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. James teaches us something new about prayer and healing. He says that mutual confession of sin is a means of healing. Confession of sin to other believers shows us the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, which states that all Christians share in Christ's priestly status and have access to God through Christ, our priest. As a result, we don't need a, a, an earthly priest to mediate for us, as mentioned earlier about the error of the Catholic teaching. This is why Protestants don't practice confession by meeting with a pastor in the office uh, as a means of obtaining forgiveness. Sin is provided for us in Christ through his atoning work on the cross. And when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. However, James here is expanding our understanding of confession of sin. Here he shows us that we are accountable to God's people. And we see it in the call to confess your sins to one another. This doesn't mean that we need to brag or boast about our, about our sins committed. But what it does mean is that when we are convicted of sin, particularly a sin against another brother or sister, we are to confess it as appropriate. I love what John Stott says regarding confession of sin. He writes, All sins, whether of thought, word, or deed, must be confessed to God because He sees them all. But we need to remember that men do not share the omniscience of God. They hear our words and see our works, but they cannot read our hidden thoughts. It is therefore social sins of word and deed which, must, which we must confess to our fellow men, not the sinful thoughts we may have harbored about them. Then he goes on to say that such sinful thoughts may not be helpful, but instead cause embarrassment. And he adds, a principle is this. The rule is always that secret sins must be confessed secretly to God, and private sins must be confessed privately to the injured party. So you may ask, how do I know if I need to confess sin to someone? Well, Christians, by God's grace, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and He will convict His people of sin. This is what Jesus told us that He would do, that the Holy Spirit would do. The Word of the, the, the Holy Spirit will use the Word of God of God to shine light on our conscience and on our heart, which will make it known to us. The second thing that James says we're to do is to pray for one another. Not only are we to confess into one another and then go our way, no, James says that the purpose of confession of sin is so that we can pray for one another. This requires humility and trust. It requires one to acknowledge wrongdoing while at the same time trusting in Christ's saving grace and mercy. We pray for one another, extending forgiveness when offended, but also interceding for strength to overcome sin, for grace 
to trust in Christ's mercy and remembering that we are all in need of Christ. In other words, confession of sin doesn't um, make us better or less important than other believers because we all need the Lord's grace and mercy. A few things to note about confession and prayer. Mutual confession and prayer ought to be done wisely. Meaning, share as much as is needed to confess the root of sin and to be able to know how to pray for adequate help. Share wisely with someone who you trust, who is mature and will not be stumbled by what you are sharing. If you need help determining who to share with, uh, ask a mature believer, ask Jason or myself, we're happy to help. Confession and prayer, or confessing and praying for one another, as well as calling for the elders of the church, require us to be members of a local church where we are involved in each other's lives. As members of FBC, we believe these truths, and this, this is why we have committed, we have covenanted with one another to seek to do one another's spiritual good to the glory of God. If you are a member here, you know that we have um, our... It's in my bag. <laughs> we have our directory, and in our directory, we have... Um, oh, never mind. We have our church covenant. Church covenant is like a vow or a promise that we have made before God and before one another. And we get this from scripture because we find examples of uh, people making covenants with each other and people making covenants with God. And so by God's grace here at FBC, we have covenant together as church members. And I'm going to read to you two of the promises uh, that we have here in our covenant. One of them being, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer both for ourselves and for others. We will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. This church covenant is not an exhaustive list of all of the commands that we find in scripture. But it is a summary of the different one another's that we find in the word of God. And just as a husband makes a covenant with a wife and vice versa, and that covenant is to be taken seriously, the church covenant that we have is also a real covenant, a real promise that we are to take seriously. And so if you're a member of FEC, I want to ask you, do you take our church covenant seriously? Is it something that you remember and that you turn to God for so that he would enable you to keep these promises that we made when we voted one another into church membership? Because remember, we promised before God and one another 
to uphold these truths or these commands. And we renew our covenant once a month when we partake of the Lord's Supper. If not, I want to ask you or encourage you to think about why not? This is a summary of God's blessings for us as God's people so that we would live in, in, in right relationship with him and in good fellowship with one another during our time in this world while we wait for the Lord's coming. If you remember, we mentioned at the beginning of uh, the opening of James that James here is writing to believers so that they would know how to live life in a fallen and in a broken world as they wait for the coming of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, these promises are for our good, and we can keep them with the Lord's help as we turn to him for, in prayer so that he would help us do good to one another and so that we would receive spiritual good for ourselves as well. In summary, James teaches us that saving faith is a faith that relates to a living God. Because of that, saving faith will enable genuine believers to pray in every situation, in times of sickness and in response to sin. In all of our prayers, God is the object of our prayer. He is the one to whom we are He is the one on whom we are dependent on. He is the one who answers prayers. James wants us to know that saving faith prays in all circumstances. Saving faith prays in all circumstances because God is a good God who is trustworthy, who desires what is best for us and is intimately involved in our lives and cares for us. And so, whether we suffer or whether we smile, let us turn to the Lord in dependence on Him, asking for His help or praising Him for His goodness. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you because we are here before you this morning. In your kindness, you granted us rest. You've given us another day of life and we would gather together with the saints to hear your word. Father, we acknowledge that we do not pray as we ought because we oftentimes are distracted or we prioritize other things. But we thank you for your word, which is clear, which teaches us how to respond to our suffering or to times of, uh, of blessing. We ask that you would help us to be a dependent people, that we would turn to you in prayer, whether uh, in the morning when we first wake up or whether we're driving with our children or driving to work, that we would always seek to acknowledge you in everything that we experience in this world. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus and by your spirit, Lord, that you would help us to be doers of your word and not just hearers of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.